Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 4, Episode 3. In the last episode, I summarized Leviticus chapters 11 through 21, adding only a few topics to the list of things to cover later. In that case, the Canaanite deity Molech, rock badgers, and the birds the Cumarent and the Hoopoe. I'll get to one of those this week, but overall this episode is not terribly different from the last couple, with a summary of chapters 22 through 27, and with that completes the summary of the book of Leviticus. And with that, let's get started. When I left off last week, God had just given Moses several requirements for the priest. In chapter 21, specifically about their physical appearance, chapter 22 continues this, no leprosy or suffering any sort of discharge, whatever that means, likely a sign of infection. But once the infection clears, all is good to go. Then there is a list of all sorts of conditions that would make the priest unholy. The simplest way to think about this is to remember all the things that could make a person unclean that I covered in the last episode. A priest could not do any of those. If he does, he must endure a rather straightforward cleansing ritual. For most of these, he must wash himself in water, then wait for the sun to set. Then God directs that no non-priest, so a lay person, can eat from the sacred donations. Think of this as everything made as an offering or sacrifice. There are exceptions, like the priest family that resides in his house, but not his servants, unless that servant was owned by the priest. If a non-qualified person does eat any offering or sacrifice, he must pay it back plus 20% restitution. The second part of the chapter covers rules about what is acceptable as an offering or sacrifice, and is a bit redundant. Nothing blemished, which may mean injured, is acceptable. And then there is a list similar to that for the physical requirements for the priests in the previous chapter. But that's only for some sacrifices, specifically required ones, like for sin. Optional sacrifices, like the peace offering, allows an animal with a blemish also, animals to be sacrificed had to be at least eight days old and had to be eaten by the priest on the same day. Finally, parent and child animals cannot be sacrificed on the same day. And that's it for the chapter. Next, of course, is chapter 23 and another passage on the mandated festivals in the Sabbath, the Passover, the Festival of Unleavened Bread, the Festival of First Fruits, a.k.a. the Harvest Festival, the Festival of Weeks, the Festival of Trumpets, the Festival of Booths, and the Day of Atonement. I've covered most of these before in Chapter 3, Episodes 74 through 77 of the podcast. But the Festival of the Trumpets is new, and a topic to add to a very short list of things to cover as part of Leviticus. And that's a short summary of an extremely redundant chapter. Chapter 24 continues the redundancy covering the lampstand and the bread placed in the tabernacle, twelve loaves for the twelve tribes of Israel. But the next part of the chapter is something new, blasphemy. It starts out with a story to provide a bit of background. From the text, a man whose mother was an Israelite 
and whose father was an Egyptian, came out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a certain Israelite began fighting in the camp. The Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name. Pausing for a second. In this context, the name is that of God. Remember, at the time, they weren't allowed to say God's name. Unpausing. The Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name in a curse, and they brought him to Moses. Now his mother's name was Shelomith, daughter of Dabri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody until the decision of the Lord should be made clear to them. End quote. Do note that this is the only second such storytelling narrative so far in the entire book of Leviticus. Next in the text, God tells Moses to have the blasphemer taken outside the camp and stoned by those who witnessed his crime against God. Which is another topic. What is blasphemy? The rest of the chapter is a recitation of more redundant rules, though some of it is in a new form. Also, in this passage is a very familiar phrase. I'll quote the entire section. You'll know which one I'm referring to. Anyone who kills a human being shall be put to death. Anyone who kills an animal shall make restitution for it, life for life. Anyone who maims another shall suffer the same injury in return, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The injury inflicted is the injury to be suffered. One who kills an animal shall make restitution for it, but one who kills a human being shall be put to death. You shall have one law for the alien and for the citizen. End quote. And that's where it comes from, at least the part found in the Old Testament. And with that comes chapter 25, and more information on things previously covered. Overall, this chapter sets out rules and regulations on things like property, household management, and the poor, the sabbatical year, and the year of Jubilee. As a reminder, and even though I covered these infrequent festivals in chapter 3 of the podcast, the sabbatical was once every seven years, and the year of Jubilee was seven times seven plus one, so every 50 years. There are a few new tidbits, especially if you're paying attention and reading between the lines. In Leviticus, there seems to be an economic and legal split between the rural agrarian society and a growing influence of their version of an urban society. In the Jubilee year, land was to be returned to its original owners, but this only applied to property outside of walled cities. Property within walled cities could, under most circumstances, remain with the purchaser indefinitely. Members of the House of Levi also had special rules that applied to the property they had previously sold. Property purchased between Jubilee years undergoes a price adjustment that takes into account the years left until the next Jubilee. Israelite landowners cannot leverage their financial position to exploit poorer Israelites. Israelites cannot exploit his employees, nor charge another Israelite financial interest. There's also a bit of an Easter egg, of course in a strictly figurative sense. In the King James Version, the middle section of verse 10 reads, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. On the iconic Liberty Bell is this almost exact quote, 
with the proper citation of book, chapter, and verse. Almost exact, as it reads. Proclaim liberty through all the land, to all the inhabitants thereof. So, why didn't they get it exactly right on the bell? Well, the Liberty Bell was cast in 1752, which was about a century and a half after King James's translation. But at that time, there were too many different King James translations to keep track of. The forgers of the bell likely had got it exactly, pedantically correct, with the translation they had in hand. It wasn't until a couple of decades after the forging of the bell that the King James Version was standardized to the text we call it today. Of course, I covered this in the first chapter of the podcast, published over three years ago. Circling back to chapter 25, the remainder of the chapter concerns how the poor are to be treated. You cannot make a dependent a slave, though they can become your hired or bound laborer. And a bound laborer is essentially an indentured servant, bound to the house until the jubilee year. After that, they and their children are free to go. Then the rules of slavery covered in chapter 3, episode 73 are reiterated. They are enslaved forever. Even after their original owner dies, they will pass to his heirs. Many parts of the chapter read like modern contracts or terms of service. If this, then that. But if this and that, then the other. Not very enthralling, but demonstrative of the rules of that place and time. And that wraps up the chapter. Next is 26, which provides a summary of the covenant between God and the people, and reiterates and expands on many of the rules God previously established on Sinai. No idols, don't place figured stones on your land, keep the Sabbath. Then God tells the people the payoff for their obedience. And even in the New Revised Standard, it's poetic and reads a bit like Shakespeare. So I'll make no attempt to paraphrase. If you follow my statutes and keep my commandments and observe them faithfully, I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall overtake the vintage, and the vintage shall overtake the sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and live securely in your land. And I will grant you peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and no one shall make you afraid. I will remove dangerous animals from the land, and no sword shall go through your land. You shall give chase to your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall give chase to a hundred, and a hundred of you shall give chase to ten thousand. Your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will look with favor upon you, and make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will maintain my covenant with you. You shall eat old grain long stored, and you shall have to clear out the old to make way for the new. I will place my dwelling in your midst, and I shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be their slaves no more. I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. End quote. So, the chosen people are obedient, and God will see to their every need, and they will live in peace. If only they could have been obedient. Of course, 
It's not a one-sided equation. God also tells them what will happen if they disobey. In his words, I will bring terror on you, consumption and fever that waste the eyes and cause life to pine away. You shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. And I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down by your enemies. Your foes shall rule over you, and you shall flee, though no one pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not obey me, I will continue to punish you sevenfold for your sins. I will break your proud glory, and I will make your sky like iron and your earth like copper. Your strength shall be spent to no purpose. Your land shall not yield its produce, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. If you continue hostile to me and will not obey me, I will continue to plague you sevenfold for your sins. I will let loose wild animals against you, and they shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock. They shall make you few in number, and your roads shall be deserted. While that's the end of the quote, and you should see what will become of them, there was actually more. Sword and pestilence, the people eating the flesh of their own children, striking them with the vengeance seven times greater than their sin, delivered to their enemies, unsatisfiable hunger, a total destruction on the land, with their enemies taken over their promised land, and the Israelites will be scattered across the region. And then, with the Israelites gone, the land will enjoy its Sabbath years. The only way the people can recover from this desolation is to confess their sins, and only then will God recall the covenants he made with Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, and restore them. And if this sin and ruins sounds like foreshadowing of the future that awaits the tribes of Israel, it is. God also reminds the people that he has honored his covenants with them before. Once again, like was seen in chapter 4, episode 1, the language in this passage is akin to Caesarean vassal treaties of the era, a topic I will be getting to shortly. And that's it for 26, which gets me to the last chapter in the book. Chapter 27 expands on the people sworn to God, the priestly tribe of Levi. But before that, we're told of the value of a human life, and the answer depends on the sex and age of the person. Anywhere from a low of three shekels for a girl between the ages of one month to five years, to a high of fifty shekels for a man between the ages of twenty and sixty. Everyone else falls somewhere in between. If the person cannot afford this price, then the priest can adjust it as he sees fit. All of this done in the context of giving money to offset the obligation made as a vow, a way out of a promise after which the promiser is then hit with remorse, similar to buyer's remorse, vow-maker's remorse. The remainder of the chapter walks through the economic nuances of offerings, sacrifices, and the like. Included in this is tithing, the mandatory 10% donation. In their case, 10% of their livestock and harvest, the 20% restitution, aka redemption. All of these rules reiterated. Then there are the rules around other things. There is no way out of sacrificing the firstborn of livestock. And if you vow to destroy the enemies of the Lord or Israel, 
There is no way out of that either. If you fail to do it, you're subject to the death penalty. And that's it for the chapter and the book. But to wrap up the summary, there are a few overriding themes in this third book. God's covenant with his chosen people is important. To the point that he will allow their enemies to control the land if they sin and fail to confess. There is a manner to adjust the requirements for the poor, but it's at the discretion of the priest. Priests wield a great deal of power and act with authority given to them by the Almighty via Moses. They also benefit directly from the donations and offerings. There are all sorts of rules and regs set into place to keep things holy and to keep the people healthy. And, because of their association with God, the Israelites are held to a higher standard than their pagan contemporaries. And that's it for Leviticus. And the only new topics to add to the list to be covered later are the Festival of Trumpets and Blasphemy. But I do still have a bit of time left in this episode, and intend to make a good use of it. The natural topic would be Suzerain Vassal Treaties. After all, it's come up twice now. But I've got about 10 minutes, and the topic will consume most, if not all, of an entire episode. So, in this chapter's episode 2, I mentioned that the text was specific about the Israelites not eating rock badgers. This is in Leviticus chapter 11 verse 5 that reads, The rock badger, for even though it chews the cud, it does not have divided hoofs. It is unclean for you. So, let's address that cud-chewing part first. The rock badger, aka the rock hyrax, or the rock rabbit, makes a loud grunting sound while moving its jaw as if chewing. It exhibits this behavior possibly as a warning or as a sign of aggression, and it's also this motion of its jaw that may have been misassociated with chewing its cud. In fact, it does nothing of the sort. Similar to the thought in the text that a rabbit also chews its cud. Cud-chewing animals are known as ruminants. Among the best known are cattle, other bovines like oxen, goats, sheep, giraffes, deer, gazelles, and antelopes, but not rabbits or rock badgers. These mammals are native to a range from sub-Saharan Africa to the Middle East a range that included the areas where the Israelites were wandering and would eventually settle. These hyrixes loved to live in the rocky confines and crags of the region, living all the way up to an altitude much higher than the highest peak on the Sinai Peninsula. So, they would have been exceedingly common to the wandering Israelites, but, as the text tells, off-limits for consumption. And that was unfortunate, as they were likely numerous, living in groups, known as colonies, that number between 10 and 80. Adults are between 9 and 11 pounds, so 4 to 5 kilos, with the boys ever so slightly larger than the girls. Those in wetter climates tend to be slightly larger than their drier climate brethren, simply due to the availability of food. But that's pretty much true throughout all of nature. They can live for up to about 10 years, pretty long for such a small mammal. Then something interesting. These small animals' closest biological relatives are thought to be elephants and manatees. Seriously, the warm water dwelling creature and the largest land animal 
and they slightly, ever so slightly, resemble their cousins, at least with their long upper incisors protruding from their mouths, like an elephant's tusk. There are other similar biological features, such as their large soft feet, but still, 9 pounds compared to 24,000. They are active mostly during the day, but sometimes at night. Like most animals that live in groups, there's a social structure, usually with a dominant male leader. In Africa, the small mammals are preyed upon by leopards and other cats, snakes, wild dogs, and birds of prey like hawks, owls, and eagles. But in Israel, their list of predators is limited to birds. They are mostly herbivores, feeding on broad-leaved plants. But, if presented, they will eat insects. All of this usually found within about a hundred feet of their nest. And while feeding, there are usually members of the colony posted as guards, providing verbal warnings of approaching predators. When the alarm is sounded, they'll naturally retreat to their nest. And about those verbal calls, they have been measured at making about 20 different vocal signals, with the most common being that warning of danger, a sort of wild animal language with distinctions of call length, patterns, complexity, and frequency. Overall, higher-ranked males tend to talk more often. Finally, the mention in Leviticus isn't the only place in the Old Testament where they are found. It's noted in Proverbs 30 that reads, Four things on earth are small, yet they are exceedingly wise. The ants are people without strength, yet they provide their food in the summer. The badgers are a people without power, yet they make their homes in the rocks. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard can be grasped in the hand, yet it is found in king's palaces. Do note that the lizard is sometimes translated as spider. The King James calls rock badgers conies, and the NIV uses the word hyrax, all referring to the same small rock dweller. And that's it for the rock badger, or conies, or hyrax, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll cover Suzerain Vassal Treaties. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.